There is this fantastic exhibition about surrealism on at the Tate Modern in London right now. How I wish I could travel to see it. But that's not going to happen, so instead I'm living vicariously through the catalogue. Jointly produced by the Tate Modern and the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, the exhibition is called Surrealism Beyond Borders. It is a fascinating show because it demonstrates just how far surrealism reached. An early 20th century avant-garde art movement that began in France, surrealism became a global art phenomenon. Even in its earliest iterations, surrealism relied on art and artifacts from around the world for its foundational ideas. Surrealist artists looked to indigenous objects from North America, the South Pacific, and Africa that had been collected by colonizers and ethnographers in the late 19th and early 20th century. This kind of inspiration has been called primitivism. So what exactly is primitivism and how do we think about it today? Unboxing the Canon takes a closer look at the history of Western art. We might be seduced by the pretty packaging, such as soft brushstrokes, brilliant colors, grand gestures, expert carving, even traditional iconography. But what happens when we take a deeper look? When we open the packaging and see what might have been invisible, or what is a cultural blind spot? Join me, Professor Linda Steer, and co-host Madeline Collins for a take on art history that connects the past to the present, critiques the canon, and reveals what might not be immediately apparent in Western art and its institutions. In this episode of Unboxing the Canon, we will look at the emergence of the concept of primitivism in the 19th century and will examine how it was used in the 20th century. We will look at different kinds of historical primitivism and will problematize this Eurocentric term. After considering historical artists, we will turn towards contemporary artists who interact with this legacy. Like many of the concepts that we have examined in this podcast, Primitivism emerged from a false hierarchy created from a European point of view. Before we get into it, let's tackle a little bit of the context first. In Europe, the late 19th century marked the start of the period known as Modernism, a social, cultural, and philosophical period defined by the world's quickly changing relationship with modern industrial and technological life. In terms of art, modernist art is usually thought to have begun with realism in the 1840s and have ended in the 60s with abstract art. During this time, we see artists abandoning traditional techniques, materials, and values in favor of new, innovative styles and iconography. By the beginning of the 20th century, for example, there was a leap to studies in non-representation and abstraction. Instead of classical subject matter, such as religious or mythological scenes, Modernists were driven by visual experimentation, as well as by social and political agendas, which sometimes looked to idealized visions of progress and utopian life. So, primitivist artists in particular were disappointed with the state of European society after industrialization. 
believing it to be overly conservative and corrupt. They were also unsatisfied with the Academy's rules and traditions. Thus, they were fascinated by art from so-called pre-civilized cultures in far-off lands, which they perceived, inaccurately, to be disconnected from European ways of life. There are a few major players in this movement, and quite infamous ones, too. Madeline, who comes to mind when you think of primitivism? Okay, this is an easy one. Paul Gauguin definitely comes to mind. His most famous works were his primitivist paintings, ones that often depicted the noble savage stereotype. This is a Western fantasy about indigenous people who are perceived as, quote, uncivilized, meaning they lack European education, technology, or culture, but are still seen as moral and good because they live natural and spiritual lives. This trope is common even today. Think of movies like Avatar or Pocahontas. When Gauguin moved from France to the island of Tahiti for two years, he was fascinated by what he perceived to be a pure, idealized, and romantic paradise, a stark contrast to the corrupt urban culture of Europe. He wanted to live and embody the so-called primitive lifestyle. Therefore, he infamously married and impregnated a young Tahitian girl who was 13 years old at the time. Her name was Tehamana. Tehamana was the subject of many of Gauguin's paintings. His most famous work is Manao Tupapau, or Spirit of the Dead Watching, from 1892. This oil painting depicts his young lover, I use that term lightly, naked and lying on her stomach on a bed layered with a blue pareo, or traditional wrap skirt. She looks directly at us with a fearful expression. A rigid old woman stands in profile behind the bed against a column, but it is unclear whether the old woman is a statue, a real person, or a ghost. The background is a rich purple that Gauguin deliberately contrasted with the yellow of the Pareo to create, as he describes, a, quote, background of terror, end quote. Like all of his Tahitian works, he painted this using more simplified and blocky forms commonly found in folk art in order to seem more authentic. In a letter to his other wife in France, Gauguin wrote that he came home one morning and found Tehamana naked on the bed, looking at him, terrified. He claimed that she was afraid of Tahitian mythological spirits who haunt the island during the night, although some scholars suggest her fear was of him. It's important to note that Tahiti was under French colonial rule, and that Tahamana and the other women likely would have gone to Catholic church, worn European-style clothes, and spoken some French. She may not have even believed in Tahitian myths at the time. Gauguin often left these important truths out of his work, which only reinforced the assumed cultural divide and made Tahiti seem even more foreign, more naive, and more primitive. Gauguin also inaccurately depicted Tahitian culture, mixing multiple traditions from different continents to fulfill the stereotypical nature of the image. Regardless, Spirit of the Dead Watching ended up being the most expensive of the works he sent home to France and continues to be one of his most well-known. What do you think about this work, Linda? Well, I've seen it several times at the Albright Knox in Buffalo. And frankly, I find it disturbing in the way it maps a white European man's primitivist fantasy onto the body of a young Tahitian woman. He pictures her as prone, submissive, and available to him. In terms of technique and style, it's a beautiful painting, especially in its use of color. But how can I take pleasure in a work of art that subjugates a woman of color? I can't get past the subject matter. 
There are other French primitivist painters, such as Henri Rousseau, who relied on imagined primitive utopias that didn't quite reproduce colonial hierarchies in the way Gauguin did. Rousseau is known for his scenes of lush jungles, savage animals, and beautiful, seductive women. Rousseau was a self-taught artist who worked with traditional genres like landscapes and portraits, but painted in a stylized manner that was more like popular cultural illustration than traditional fine art. He was kind of a French version of Maude Lewis, although he was working earlier than her. Despite painting exotic jungle scenes, Rousseau never left France. Instead, he drew his inspiration for his imaginary plants, animals, and scenes from photographs, botanical gardens, zoos, and colonial expositions. Colonial exhibitions and world fairs are important to mention here, for they were large-scale, temporary spectacles that supported and reinforced empire. These exhibitions centered around bringing people and artifacts from the colonies to Europe to entertain and satisfy European curiosity. Popular in France and England, these government-sponsored exhibitions even had human zoos where live human beings performed cultural tasks to emulate life in the colonies. Other exhibits recreated so-called primitive fantastical rites and spectacles, like the rituals of a witch doctor or warriors' heads on spikes for European audiences who knew little of the realities of the places the displays depicted. Similar to colonial exhibitions, ethnographic museums were permanent structures that housed collections of ritual, cultural, and art objects from around the world, objects that were obtained through questionable means. Many of them were stolen. These institutions were intended to educate European populations about the peoples around the world who had become subject to European imperialism. Ethnographic museums proliferated during the 18th and 19th centuries and showcased objects that were meant to highlight differences between European cities and the so-called primitive African world, for example. These exhibits aggressively promoted colonial rule and enslavement in the colonies, justifying Western domination. Another artist, Pablo Picasso, came into contact with African masks at the Trocadero Museum of Ethnology in Paris in 1907, leading him to incorporate African and Iberian art into his own work. This was critical in the invention of Cubism, since Picasso adapted the strong angles and lines of African masks into his paintings and drawings. He had already been shifting towards simplified forms, but like Gauguin, he adopted the blocky, angular planes of African and Iberian masks, and applied them to his whole canvas. One of Picasso's most well-known paintings, Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, from 1907, derives in part from his visits to the museum. After months of revision and hundreds of preliminary sketches, the enormous eight-foot square painting shocked and terrified the art world when it was first revealed. The MoMA, where it is held, claims that, quote, this work is as uncomfortable to look at as it is impossible to look away from. No other painting in the history of Western art so boldly and baldly confronts the viewer, end quote. It consists of a compressed jagged space of pinks, blues, and whites, occupied by five female figures. 
The figures are nude women, some striking seductive poses, but instead of the passive, docile gazes usually seen in paintings, these women look directly at the viewer with piercing eyes, and two of their faces have been replaced entirely by angular African masks. They are sexualized and deliberately made ugly, embodying the concept of the grotesque that is frequently associated with traditional African art. Scholars have said that this was done in part to revolt against traditional Western art by corrupting its idealized female nudes and concepts of perspective. Picasso doesn't depict the past, but instead chooses very real, modern imagery. The women represent five prostitutes from a real brothel on Avignon Street in the red-light district of Barcelona, which Picasso himself often visited. He described the painting as his, quote, first exorcism painting, end quote, as it references conflict in his personal life. It's a very visually arresting image. It's definitely not an inviting scene. The term cultural appropriation has often been leveled at this work. Do you think that's a fitting designation for this piece? Well, it's a complex topic. Appropriation is common practice throughout art history, and sometimes it's unavoidable or even desirable to borrow from other cultures. However, it's important to notice the difference between Picasso's fame and renown and the obscurity of the artists who made the masks he used. Now, certainly this has to do with the two different systems of art, but it also has to do with ethnographic collecting practices which look to individual objects as representative of an entire culture. Writer Parta Mitter reminds us that while Picasso's Les Demoiselles d'Avignon was, quote, a turning point, inspiring artists to embrace African culture as an antidote to classical taste, end quote, it is important to remember that, quote, Western engagement with the primitive was always predicated on Western superiority, end quote. Now, that said, as Mitter and others acknowledge, surrealism is a little bit different. Premier numéro de la révolution surréaliste, l'unanimité de ses collaborateurs est acquise sur les points suivants. Le monde, soi-disant cartésien, qui les entoure, est un monde insoutenable, mystificateur, sans drôlerie. In their quest to escape what they called the bourgeois rationalism of European Enlightenment reason, many surrealist artists turned towards so-called primitive art and adopted tribal art in ways that did not necessarily acknowledge its locality, complexity, differentiation, or sophistication. At the same time, the founding members of Surrealism were anti-imperialist and anti-colonialist, despite these blind spots. So, for example, when the Paris Colonial Exhibition was happening in 1931, they worked on a counter-exhibition, the Anti-Colonial Exhibition, with the aim of revealing the truth about the colonies. Surrealist exhibitions mixed art from different eras, geographies, and cultures. It was not unusual to see a hide a mask in a room with surrealist objects, for example. Scholar Claire Howard notes that the more subversive of these exhibitions, quote, deployed primitive works as a challenge to Western values, end quote, and that these kinds of juxtapositions were an attempt to decolonize aesthetics. As Surrealism became a global movement, and was not just limited to white European cultures, the use of so-called primitive works became even more complex. Take Wifredo Lam's work, for example. Lam was a Cuban-born artist of Chinese and Afro-Cuban heritage, who studied art in Spain and then lived in Paris in the late 1930s, where he met members of the Surrealist movement 
and joined them. Using Afro-Cuban imagery and modernist painting techniques, Lamb's works addressed issues related to social justice, spirituality, and the effects of colonialism. Lamb's figures adopt the hybrid forms that are common in Surrealism, but with a particularly Cuban perspective. So he references Santeria, the syncretic religion that combines elements from Yoruba and Roman Catholic traditions. The jungle, painted in 1943, depicts masked figures crowded into a Cuban jungle where humans, animals, and plants merge. Lamb stated that, quote, In the jungle and in other works, I have tried to relocate black cultural objects in terms of their own landscape and in relation to their own world, end quote. So Lamb saw his art as a form of what he called mental decolonization. So maybe we can see surrealist artists forming a bridge between simply taking from and exploiting non-Western cultures, such as in Gauguin's work, to a more symbiotic relationship where various cultures intermingle and adopt ideas, techniques, and practices from one another. So yeah, in contemporary art, we can see artists from traditionally appropriated cultures interacting with European techniques at the same time as they maintain and build on their own traditions. Several South Pacific artists accomplish this cross-cultural exchange while staying true to oceanic traditions. Abstraction is still a major part of contemporary oceanic art, but in these cases, it is combined with significant iconography that references cultural and personal meaning. Fatu Feyu is a contemporary Samoan artist living in New Zealand. His work utilizes traditional Samoan motifs with a contemporary twist and is an iconic figure in the New Zealand art scene and beyond. Feyu merges traditional art and techniques like tapa cloth, lapita pottery, and tattoo with personal meaning. Catherine Higgins writes that Feyu's paintings are, quote, va'umanu, vessels of knowledge that emphasize the importance of fa Samoa, the Samoan way. End quote. So, for instance, in Talanoa from 2014, he paints a crisscrossing grid in a quick, sketchy style and fills the resulting triangles with yellow, red, and some green. Upon closer inspection, some of the triangles are actually two fish kissing, their wide, round eyes seeming to look at us. The work is a reminder of the strength of communication and love, which forms a structure for any relationship, but especially family and community. Without it, any culture would not thrive. Orongo Mowai from 2010 is a formidable and beautiful work that is inspired by Feu's encounters with the Mowai, or statues, on Rapa Nui, or as we know it, Easter Island. Tall and painted vivid red, this carved face contrasts dramatically with the landscape it resides in, recalling Western modernist traditions like minimalism and monumental public sculpture but it is based on the traditional Rapa Nui sculptures dedicated to the god Makemake. Feu strategically placed it facing out over the Polynesian Triangle in order to honor Pacific migration. The influence of diaspora and cross-cultural dialogue are also present in the work of Zach Ove, 
a multidisciplinary British Trinidadian artist who reimagines modern art through the lens of African and Caribbean art, performance, and culture. For Ove, the carnival is significant. He says that it, quote, beckons us to come together. It's a chance for people to experience transformation and the art of African identity following the migration of Africans to the West Indies and Caribbeans to the UK. It's important to have an awareness of who we are, especially in new places where we may be patronized as secondary citizens or immigrants, end quote. In his series Moko Jumbies, Ove creates large figural sculptures based on familiar characters from the Trinidad and Tobago Carnival. Moko Jumbies refers to West African spiritual beings that protect villages from evil and function as intermediaries between life and death. Ove's sculptures represent the feathered and decorated carnival performers mounted on stilts, but with a twist. Rendered in black and gold and made from recycled materials like bells, masks, and fiberglass, the sculptures connect African and Caribbean traditions. And his work is political, too. So, for instance, the version Ove created for the Art Gallery of Ontario appears to hold up one fist in the universal symbol of black power, while the other hand is seemingly raised to mimic the hands-up-don't-shoot gestures from the Black Lives Matter movement. In 2015, the British Museum commissioned two of these sculptures to flank the entrance to their exhibition, Celebrating Africa. Now that is interesting, because Ove's sculptures use masks, and the British Museum has collected many masks and other artifacts during Britain's colonization of parts of Africa, including the thousands of Benin bronzes that were looted by the British military in 1897. And very generally speaking, these are the same kinds of masks and objects that influenced French artists in the early 19th century. In another amazing work of art, Ove created a large-scale installation for Somerset House in London in 2016. The work consists of 46-foot graphite sculptures modeled after a small Kenyan sculpture. Titled The Invisible Man and the Mask of Blackness, the installation refers both to acclaimed Black author Ralph Ellison's novel The Invisible Man and a courtly performance called The Mask of Blackness that took place at Somerset House in 1605. This performance was the first stage production with the blackface makeup, and one of the performers was Queen Anne. The work was installed at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art in the Museum's Sculpture Garden in 2019. As Ove notes in a video about the work, this installation is interesting, for it interacts and is juxtaposed with the garden's existing Rodin sculptures, creating an almost reversal of primitive and modern ideas. Ove notes that his sculptures stand rigidly erect in the pose of a typical European gentleman, while Rodin's figures writhe in a kind of primitivism that rebels against the modern world. This juxtaposition, Ove claims, reveals stereotypes. The work itself refers to the history of the appropriation and objectification of African sculptures and African bodies. Black artists have been dismissed and have had their work pillaged, but Ove reinforces their importance, both as historical creators and on the contemporary international art scene. As the LACMA website states, the invisible man in the mask of blackness, quote, encapsulates the complex history of racial objectification 
and the evolution of black subjectivity. End quote. A powerful work indeed. We can see some of these same ideas weaving through the work of contemporary Beninese artist Romuald Hazume. Hazume is very interested in the history and the European use of African masks, and his multidisciplinary practice pays homage to the same masquerade traditions that Ove refers to, while centering issues close to his own life and country. In an interview, he said, quote, Whenever people anywhere talk about Africa, they think about masks. Today, they are the best way to represent my people, who continue to question their own identity, end quote. Hazume recontextualizes the masks for a uniquely African context, removing them from their role as objects of European fascination. Hazume grew up constructing masks out of gasoline jerry cans in his hometown of Porto Novo. Not only do the masks, infused with humor, honor West African masquerade, they also critique the common uses of both masks and jerry cans. Benin and Nigeria are engaged in a black market trade for gasoline, with motorcycles often illegally and dangerously running jerry cans of fuel across the border from Nigeria. These jerry cans eventually litter the streets, so here in Benin, the symbol of the jerry can is just as recognizable as the classic mask style. In Cargo from 2006, Hozume strung together five jerry can faces on either side of a motorcycle, referencing their illegal transport. The rows of faces are surprising, maybe almost comical, but also a bit unsettling as the iconic symbol is suddenly anthropomorphized. In 2008's Exit Ball, he constructed an 82-inch globe completely out of jerry can masks, cleverly showing the many faces of globalization, using the detritus of one of its many consequences on the countries in the global south. Hazume frequently addresses the significant impact that Western ideals of consumerism and capitalism have on countries like Benin, which still suffer greatly from the effects of colonization. Consequently, Hazume enjoys sending the littered jerry cans back to Europe and America, since he exhibits widely all over the world. He says, quote, I send back to the West that which belongs to them, which is to say the refuse of consumer society that invades us every day. His most famous work is La Bouche du Roi, from 2006, an installation of 304 jerry can masks arranged in the shape of a slave ship known as the Brooks. A diagram image of this ship was popularized in the 18th century by British abolitionist William Wilberforce, who disseminated it to show the atrocities of slave trading. The diagram depicted the overcrowded, cramped space that African slaves would be forced into for the long journey across the Atlantic. Hazume recreated the image on a huge scale, using individual jerry can masks in the places of the bodies on the ship, again rehumanizing and giving a face to the many identities erased by racial slavery. All of the masks are black except for one bright yellow one who wears a yellow crown and a white beard and rests at the head of the ship alongside another black mask. Amongst the jerry cans are guns, gin bottles, and bowls of tobacco, spices, beads, clothes, and more representing the coveted imports also traded from Africa to Europe and the Americas. Sounds and voices play over the installation, and it is accompanied by a short film about the gasoline market between Benin and Nigeria. Benin was a particular source point during the slave trade, 
and works like La Bouche du Roi highlight Hazumi's important preoccupation with his own country, bringing its history to the international spotlight. The Atlantic slave trade might have ended, but African countries continue to suffer consequences from its legacy. This is such a fascinating and moving work, Madeline. Thanks for telling us about it. We've talked a lot today about European fantasies of primitivism, the implications of that, and the appropriation of Indigenous, particularly West African, art objects such as masks. We've seen how some artists are folding the notion of primitivism back on itself to critique Western imperialism and colonialism and its effects. As Hazeme demonstrates in La Bouche de Roi, slavery mutated. It hasn't ended. He states, quote, My piece is not talking about old slave ships. It's about what happens today. End quote. So I'd like to end this episode with a question. What does it mean that the British Museum, a museum founded by a man who profited from slavery, a museum that holds thousands of stolen Benin artifacts, has purchased Hazime's work of art? Food for thought. See you next time. Season 2 of Unboxing the Canon is hosted and produced by Professor Linda Steer. Our sound designer and contributing researcher is Madeline Collins, who is also reading these credits. If you like Unboxing the Canon, please subscribe and rate us on any of the main podcast apps. Because this podcast is an OER, it is free to download and use in your own teaching and learning. If you do use it in your class, we would love to know. You can find us on Twitter at Canon Unboxing or Instagram at Unboxing the Canon. You can also write to unboxingthecanon at gmail.com. Financial support for this podcast comes from the Humanities Research Institute and Match of Minds, both at Brock University. Brock University is located on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe peoples, many of whom continue to live and work here today. We encourage you to learn about the history of the Indigenous people and the treaties and agreements that govern the territory where you live. Our region is covered by the Upper Canada Treaties and is within the land protected by the Dish With One Spoon Wampum Agreement. We acknowledge that our great standard of living is directly related to the resources and friendship of First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples.